This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo. I'll be joined by my co-host Michael Horn in a few minutes. On today's episode, Marsha Ballinger will be joining us. She's the president of Lorain County Community College in Ohio. When I ask folks about some of the most innovative colleges and universities in the country, Lorraine is often mentioned. So we wanted to talk with Marsha about what she's been able to achieve at this community college southwest of Cleveland. Marsha, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm happy to be here to share the Lorraine County Community College story. So as um, you know, there's a lot of community colleges out there, but uh, I've identified you as probably one of the most innovative community colleges. And just tell us a little bit about your journey the last uh, couple of years. Where where was Lorraine County Community College? You were previously provost there, I think. And, and where has it uh, come from uh, since uh, since that time and now you're president? Well, and we appreciate your identifying us. Innovation has been at the heart of Lorain County Community College since we began back in 1963 as Ohio's first community college. So that sense of innovation and continuing to not only be responsive to community needs, but to help really drive uh, the creation of the vibrant community for all. And um, so at at LCCC, we have been laser-focused on our transformation from uh, from 2011 through today uh, in terms of going from what I have described us uh, having uh, a theme of students needing to be college-ready to our college now being student-ready. In other words, how can we assure that every student's dream matters and that they can earn their degree and credential regardless of their background, income, socioeconomics, that we truly are their launch pad. So back in uh, 2011, we had the great opportunity to become uh, part of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's uh, completion by design. Ohio was one of the three states to be part of that cadre, and LCCC was one of the three institutions, and at the same time become part of Achieving the Dream. And so those those two networks were really catalytic in helping us to Uh, become much more data-informed and deliberate about redesigning uh, with the end in mind, and the end in mind being getting students to credentials and degrees and transfer or directly into jobs with meaningful wages. And so redesigning our institution uh, through a variety of what I believe have been very innovative uh, approaches with regard to education services and partnerships to create greater and more equitable outcomes for all students. So you mentioned, um, uh, obviously, the importance of these, these networks. What, what was different about being part of these networks than not being part of these networks, right? So, so many institutions are getting ideas from other institutions. They're going to conferences. They're trying to copy those ideas on their own institutions. What was different about being part of a network than instead of just you know, going and seeing examples of what other institutions were doing? And, and copying them on your own campus? We believe that the network um, opportunities through both eight, uh, Achieving the Dream and Completion by Design, as well as our statewide network in Ohio through our Student Success Center, have been catalysts for us because 
it not only unites around common themes and purposes, but we are continually learning from our colleagues and the resources that um, and opportunities that are made available. And coaching has been integral to all of this for us. And um, and having those individuals to call upon and to to really help to challenge and to have that outside lens and to and the networks have really helped to expose us, I believe, to some of the innovations that are occurring at other institutions. And so through an internetworked matrix, if you will, I think we're all rising together. And uh, when it's a one-off and, and a college is just trying to, I think, do professional development around conferences, you might have a small team that goes and they have some takeaways, but when you're part of a networked experience, it's part of the culture change, which I think really needs to occur when you're trying to transform the type of results um, that we have been focused on at Lorraine. In terms of your results, can you talk a little bit about some of the transformations that you've done? Uh, obviously, a lot of them have been surrounding student success. Could you give us an example of one or two uh, that sure. you've been able to accomplish as part of this process? Sure. So we have we have um, created, we've done a lot of pilots when we've had funding to demonstrate the effectiveness of it. And if it works, then we scale it. And, uh, and so we're organized around guided pathways for one. So we moved from a cafeteria model where there were over 120 different choices down to guided pathways that provide for essentially nine meta majors and very structured around that. On the uh, scaling what works uh, in our evidence-based approach to student success, uh, one example of that that has been wildly successful is uh, we we replicated the CUNY ASAP model here, and um, we did that working back with what is now Ascendium, previously Great Lakes uh, Foundation, and MDRC. And we were able to move our graduation rates for students who participated in our version of ASAP. So essentially, the students are Pell eligible. Uh, they had to um, attend at least uh, 12 or have at least 12 credit hours per semester, had to guarantee that they would go to tutoring for math if they placed in developmental math, and uh, also that they had to meet with their advisor once a month. And in return for that, they received incentives such as a gift card for food and gas as well as free books. We were able to demonstrate um, the same type of results that CUNY ASAP has had for the past decade, and we moved the needle to a 41% graduation rate with that. So we, we are now scaling that and have taken in the past two years our own cohort of over 220 students per year to do that. So, and we're we're creating a part-time version of that model with the same types of incentives. Uh, so I think that's one example. If, if, if you can find a program and redesign around it where you can move that needle, when we started in 2011, our iPad graduation rate was 8%. Hmm. It is now 28%. 
the cohort that we, because we did a research sample with the MDRC project uh, on the CUNY uh, ASAP replication, those who were not in it, uh, their graduation rate uh, was about 20%. So very, very significant. So one final question, um, Marcia. Uh, so in some ways, it sounds like okay, there are there are way, there are pathways to do this for institutions like yours. Um, would, when you talk to other presidents who are, are thinking about going under an institutional transformation like you have, perhaps they have access to uh, networks. Perhaps they have great data warehouses, so they know what you know. They know who their students are and what they need. Uh, perhaps they could redesign um, some of these pathways for students. What else do you tell them is an absolutely necessary ingredient? In other words, in some ways, it sounds like if you could follow a formula, it's somewhat easy. But what has been the most difficult part, or what do you tell your call, your counterparts in other parts yeah, of the country it's, it's, has been the most difficult part? It might part. sound easy, but it, it, for, <laughs> for those who are doing it, it's a, it's a heavy lift, and, and it's an all-in commitment. It, it's not a boutique program, right, where it's a one-off and you, you just do that. It, it is that commitment and belief in the culture that, that students' dreams matter and that uh, there are risks that need to be taken and there are hard decisions that have to be made as a result of this transformation uh, because systems produce what they're designed to produce. And so, you know, if you're producing graduation rates less than 10% or less than 20%, then the system needs to be redesigned. And and that is, it's tedious, it's long, it's hard, and change doesn't happen overnight. We are into our, our eighth year of it, and we're really seeing the results now accelerating, and we're seeing the closing of the gaps. But, you know, the conversations that my colleagues and I have is that, it, it's not a one and done. It, it's a long commitment, and it takes leadership at all levels within the organization to make that happen. Marsha, I appreciate your time today, and we'll be right back on Future You. Thank you so much, Jeff. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back to uh, Future You. I have my co-host, uh, Michael Horn, joining me from uh, Skype today. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much. Excited to join you uh, even remotely, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks. We just got done uh, talking with Marsha Ballinger, who's the president of Lorain County uh, Community College just outside of uh, Cleveland in Ohio. And, and Michael, one of the things that she talked about a, uh, a lot was about copying ideas that are working at other institutions, uh, including you know the CUNY uh, ASAP model, uh, guided pathways in particular. She used to talk. She talked a lot about how they used to have this kind of cafeteria model uh, there, which gave students in some ways too many choices. 
thus had issues with uh, college uh, retention, both and, and completion. You've thought I know a lot of you thought a lot about guided pathways, given your work on mm-hmm. uh, your new book, Choosing College. Does that work for everybody? Yeah, I, my takeaway. Well, let me actually step back a little bit, which is, you know, Clay Christensen and I, when we wrote Disrupting College with Louis Soros, when he was at uh, the Center for American Progress, uh, we concluded uh, that guided pathways were incredibly important to have this just straight, narrow path for a student. They get on, they don't get confused by all the different courses they could take, accumulate credits, but not toward any major, and then don't graduate on time, and all the cost that that, uh, that contributes and so forth, and that many students, when they're coming, they're looking for the most direct path, right, to completion and, and to lose that complexity. And, and so I think that logic behind guided pathways makes a ton of sense in a lot of cases. It also reduces administrative overhead costs for the institution to coordinate people going back and forth between pathways, which is important in today's day and age with college costs being what they are. Uh, I think the conclusion that the surprising conclusion, I guess I would say, I took away from choosing college uh, when we did the research was that if you're in the help me step it up job, say in our language, right, you're trying to, you look around, and you're saying, this isn't who I am, I'm ready to step it up, and I know what I want to move toward. And so you have a very clear idea of what that future is. A guided pathway makes a ton of sense. And I think it's one of the reasons why guided pathways has seen such a jump in outcomes uh, from just implementing that almost alone. Uh, relative to the cafeteria model. The challenge becomes, though, if you're a student who's running away from something, say, or doing what's expected of them, two of the other jobs that we found that clearly community colleges get hired for all the time, a guided pathway isn't really going to fit with you because you don't really know what you want. And and even a, a mega major or opting into a certain uh, sort of broad pathway and then having a couple lectures and a couple uh, conversations with companies or something like that about what a job might entail and then getting on the pathway, it's actually not enough information or context for you to make that decision in a way that you're actually convinced by. And so uh, a huge uh, takeaway, I think, from from the research we did was guided pathway, definitely better than what's there before, but it doesn't fit every single circumstance. And we have to recognize when the student is coming in without that clear direction and almost shape that first semester or first year to be about, let's expose you not just in a lecture format, but in a series of experiential learning opportunities deeply into a variety of these different pathways to figure out what actually sticks what actually matches your strengths and, and what gets you excited, and then put you on the guided pathway uh, to the career. And it was interesting. I, I got to be in uh, Washington State uh, about a year ago or so uh, with their community colleges, and I was presenting this research before the book came out. And there was presidents and counselors at this audience. It was an interesting mix of group. And every single counselor came up to me afterwards and said, oh my goodness, thank you for saying this. My president is just pushing guided pathways right now and I can see it's leaving out these other students and we have to figure out a different way to serve them. And so I just, I thought it was really interesting and in, in the nuance and, and I guess it goes to something else that I'm, I'm curious your take. I'm super impressed that, that Marsha uh, listens so well to other people and actually brings in practices from other parts of higher ed. But then you also, I think, have to have the uh, ability to step back and say, best practices might not be the right practice for me in this particular situation or this particular student. So it's almost like let's learn from higher ed, 
but not replicate it wholesale without asking, is our context the same such that we can result, uh, expect the same result? Does that resonate? It does. And you know, one of the things she talked about was her, uh, what, what they've learned through the networks that they've been part of, uh, achieving the dream and, and completion by uh, design. Uh, I just finished uh, working on a paper with uh, Ithaca SNR uh, that was funded by uh, the Lumina Foundation called Unlocking the Power of Collaboration. And we really looked at this idea of collaborative networks in and around higher education. And, and are they working? Uh, and, and kind of what are what are the models of, of success? And, and what we found after more than a, a year of research, we did a ton of interviews. We had a convening in, uh, in D.C. You know, we found out that the, really that, you know, there are three situations in which the network approach might be advisable. You know, when the when the when the problem is complex and important to the community from which the potential network will be drawn. So if you think about, you know, uh, you know, the University Innovation Alliance, uh, for example, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, achieving the dream or these other types of, of networks, right, they're really focused on these big problems that are facing multiple institutions that are hard to, uh, for one institution to follow. Uh, or, or to solve uh, when the knowledge, expertise, and access to target populations and other components of of solutions are distributed across different organizations. So again, the network approach helps bring together organizations, and, and when the problem has no readily apparent uh, solutions, so it really requires kind of iterative discovery and and development of solutions, which again is very difficult for a single organization uh, to to follow. And so the thing that I was really impressed with. Um, with what Lorraine Community College was able to do is that through these networks, they, you know, not only, you know, people in higher education go to conferences, they learn, they're able to develop things on their own campuses from learning from other institutions, but they brought these other institutions on campus. They have coaching uh, from these other institutions that are part of their network. So it's a much more deep and ingrained uh, type of learning community that develops uh, that I think is actually going to be necessary. And, and, you know, we found this in this paper is actually going to be necessary, I think, to solve many of the intractable problems that we're seeing in, in higher education. I think it's going to be really difficult for institutions to, to go at this, uh, to go at this alone. Um, and, and Michael, I think you're seeing some of the same stuff, same, same results in some of your work as well in terms of this power of, of networking. And again, may not be for everybody, uh, but I think that this idea of, of institutions going alone is just not going to work in the next decade. Yeah, and frankly, it's a breath of fresh air to see a leader like her take, uh, be such an active participant in a network and, and like you described, actually have them on campus and iterating with them deeply and not worrying about whether the idea was hers or not for political reasons, so to speak, and, and being able to take from others. I, I think so much of education is often, well, we do it this way, they do it that way uh, and, and for, for an individual leader. And, and so that I think that's incredibly refreshing to have that sharing and network. I also think, frankly, the conclusions from your paper are incredibly important to say these are the circumstances in which it works. And when we're trying to achieve something different, you know, maybe it's not the most appropriate way to go about it. The only other thing I would add is you've been talking about this for, for several years now that, yes, there's mergers and acquisitions and all sorts of things that may happen in higher ed. But actually, before we even get to that point, we just need to be better collaborators and develop better networks and be, uh, develop better consortia and formal ways of working with each other. And this seems like a really important step in that direction. Right. And I, and I think that's absolutely critical is that I think we've been focused a lot on, on mergers and acquisitions, and that's probably going to be the pathway for a lot of institutions that don't have um, really kind of anything to sell uh, or anything to cooperate on. But I think that there is a, this is a pathway um, for, for other institutions. The other thing that 
Marcia talked a, lo- a little bit about was their, you know, visioning process that really involved uh, the community. And this goes back to an earlier episode that we had with Joe May in, in Dallas. Again, the connections to the local economy and their in their visioning process. You know, Ohio's economy is uh, is struggling. Um, you know, obviously heavily dependent on on manufacturing and in many parts of the state. And so when they started their visioning process. Uh, first of all, they did it very quickly, but they included a lot more uh, community members uh, than I think most colleges do in their own uh, visioning process because they really wanted to know what is the threat of automation, artificial intelligence, and augmented reality going to have on our programs and on our future jobs? You know, what is the future going to look like? And so they had this visioning committee that brought together all these various uh, stakeholders. They had 120 people uh, on this group. Again, many people from off campus as they were trying to develop the system. But again, bringing the community in who know what's happening in the in the local economy was absolutely critical uh, to them. And, and again, it really just points out, uh, I think that community colleges, given uh, the variety of, uh, of their mission uh, compared to, for example, you know, a traditional residential college that, um, you know, could develop, it might, it might take them a year or two to develop a program and their students go through four years and then they eventually get out and hopefully get a job. I think community colleges just have to be much more adaptable, much more flexible because of who they serve uh, and particularly because of their, uh, uh, you know, their, their position in the local, in their local community. Yeah. And that, that sense of vision though is so important and clarifying it through that grassroots process and then having a leader who's super clear about it and can bring people back to it every single time when they make action. Uh, I think that's a great takeaway and a great way to uh, leave this episode of future you and uh, hopefully continues to give our listeners a vision for what the future of higher education will look like. So as always, uh, Jeff, thank you. And thanks so much to our listeners for joining us. We'll see you next time. Hey folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.